Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 547 with Paige Gould. I mean, I know I already said it, but just don't take no for an answer and keep going. Because the difference between a business owner and somebody who tried to own a business is somebody who didn't take no for an answer. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethic Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicsuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Paige Gould. Paige, are you feeling unstoppable today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So hailing from Franklin Lakes at the age of 15, Paige Gould got her start in the hospitality industry. After graduating from the CIA in 2008 and completing her internship at Clio in Boston, Paige made the move to Boston to meet up with her then-boyfriend, Chris Gould, where they got their start working under some incredible restaurants. Chris was formerly the sous chef at Copa and the chef de cuisine at Uni Sashimi Bar, and Paige was a cook at Clio and Toro. In 2014, they made the move to Portland, Maine, where they opened Central Provisions, uh, where they're also the finalists to the prestigious Best New Restaurant by James Beard, 2015. That's awesome. And then four years later, they're still going strong with Central Provisions, and they opened their second restaurant, Tipo, and crushing it over there. I can't wait to get your story and to find out how you got to where you are today, Paige. Well, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us um it's something that i have has been very important for me and chris ever since the beginning is that our number one and goal and everything is employees first Mm. and guests second because if you have your employees best interests in mind and you show that you're working for them and you want them to be happy and you want them to be there, then then they're going to make the guest interactions easy and everything else will be a lot easier because happy employees make everything run so much easier. Absolutely. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. Uh, I agree 100%. So uh, where did it all start for you? Take us to that moment where you fell in love with hospitality. 
So I started as a hostess and a coke girl when I was 15 years old, and I actually wasn't even allowed to go into the kitchen. What? Um, Because Tito, the owner, he, the kitchen was all full of a bunch of Colombian men, Uh. and if I ever even walked close to the the door, they would all start catcalling at me, and Tito was very protective over me. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) So I was not even allowed to go into the kitchen. Um, but I loved the culture and just the people and I loved interacting with people and I tried so many other professions after that. I did retail, I did sales, uh, I did recording. I thought I wanted to be an art teacher, went and even got a bachelor's in studio art. And no matter what I did, I always found myself gravitating back to the industry. And when I was at Franklin and Marshall, um, where I got my BA, I, uh, I graduated with a 3.3, not too shabby. But when I should have been, I don't know, in the library studying, <laughs> I was usually found in the grocery store shopping. And I was the one who would always show up with snacks <laughs> and everything for study groups. Awesome. And I actually was a founding member of the Gourmet Society there. And I was the um, food and beverage director of a completely student-run business. So all of these things, and I was trying to do all these things, but yet I was always gravitating back to food until finally I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Why am I not doing food? It's weird because there's like almost a stigma in, t- in like the society today that like it's not a real job. You, like you can't get into the restaurant industry, like get mm-hmm. like a quote unquote real job. Uh, do you think that was kind of in the back of your head? Like this isn't serious. I, 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 need, I can't focus on this. This isn't legit. Well, my, my mom, I actually should talk about my mom. She... I was always in the kitchen with her and I had remembered my grandfather had said to her at one point when she said she wanted to cook, he said, no daughter of mine is going to be slinging hash for a living. Mm. So I remembered hearing that. And then later on, I was like, yes, no, this is what I want to do. I want to cook. And my mom was completely supportive and my dad was completely supportive. Everybody was all for it. But I talked to my grandmother's best friend and she's like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. That's fu- that work is far too hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everybody. And it's I get true. why some people wouldn't like want to see someone they love go in that direction. But some of us are just freaks and we love it. So what was it for you that really you said you kept on gravitating back? What was sucking you in? What was it about the hospitality industry and food and service that really resonated with you? The concept of happiness. Um, I love the fact that you can have a guest come in who's having the worst day and is just so down and then you can give them good service and good food and then change their whole perspective on their day and they can walk out in a fantastic mood and that you can literally serve people happiness Mm. and I loved that and I also just love eating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you, sister. Uh, so when did you, so you eventually uh, went to the CIA. You decided, like, this is going to be my path. Like, what was that conversation like when you committed to it, like, fully? Um, well, I was a sophomore, and I called my mom, and I said I wanted to go to CIA. And she said, that's great. If that's what you want to do with your life, that's fine. I was like, okay, cool. So I'm quitting college. And she said, sure, whatever. (laughs) And then I called my dad and I had the same conversation. He said, it's your loans. And I said, okay, great. 
And clearly I was looking for somebody to tell me no, because I called my best friend's mom and she said, mm-mm. <laughs> she said, was this the friend, that, the, the woman you were talking about before? Yes. Okay. Same woman, yeah. um, Fran, who's had a very, very big mark on my life. But she said, nope, you are going to finish what you started. Did you? I okay. did. I did. She said, because no matter what, you'll always have the BA to fall back on if you ever need it. And even though... I mean, I did a stupid thing in the first place. I knew I wanted to be an art major, and I went to a liberal arts school that uh, was known for pre-med and pre-law. Hmm. I've got some really smart <laughs> friends. <laughs> so uh, what was it like at the CIA? Any key mentors, any big lessons during this time that has like really stuck with you? Um, I think the CIA, the, the biggest benefit of the CIA for me was that you got to learn a little about a lot. And it helped me really focus on what I wanted to do more and which direction I thought I wanted to go into. So what part of the CIA resonated the most with you? Which lane was the most appealing to you at that time? I thought I wanted to do molecular gastronomy. Okay. Because it was so cool and flashy yeah. and all of these different chemicals and so then i went and worked at cleo and i was like oh it is cool but i like rustic food better (laughs) so how did you figure that out uh from i mean well so cleo when i was applying for my um internships in the first place i actually did an um an internship or a stage at moto which is kumaro kantun old spot um may he rest in peace but it, that was just just the top level of everything was so, like, nothing. Like, even what was a hard-boiled egg, they made it square. So nothing was <laughs> what it ever seemed to be, which was cool. But I had never actually worked in a restaurant before, in the kitchen. I had only worked in the front of the house, and I had done catering beforehand. So then when I went to Cleo, and it was a touch of molecular gastronomy flair, but still had a lot of traditional restaurant characteristics. That's why I landed there. And then after seeing it and working with it, I came to the conclusion that it's really cool what you can do with molecular gastronomy. But a lot of times I feel like the essence and the flavor get lost in the mix of trying to to make it and manipulate it and force it into something that it's not supposed to be. I think the other variable there too, and maybe, I mean, there's probably a story behind the science of what's going on, but with the rustic cooking, there's a story of that plate, where it came from, uh, you know, how it evolved and the spin that you put on it. But there's more of a storyline that pulls me. I, I kind of tend to be there with you, like with the more rustic cooking, there's a culture attached to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that being able to share the, the, the story through the food, the culture of that, that food is really interesting. Did that resonate with you or? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more just about, the style um, of cooking. the, what's a good way of putting it? The auth- authenticity of it. Okay. And how, instead of trying to make it be something that it's not supposed to be, just Let it be making itself. it be the best that it can be. Yeah. I dig that. Cool. Um, so, you got to work under some really great restaurateurs, uh, Ken Oranger being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody like Ken or any big mentors, any influences, people that you really admire and just learn from during this time when you're coming up? Um, I mean, I, Ken definitely had a very 
large effect. He was, and with the whole concept of being kind and good to your employees, Ken was always so good to his What kind of boss was he? Take us through what it was like working for him, things you would see him do, and how that shaped you today. Well, I think the funniest story for me is that on the day that I did my stage before doing my internship, I had seen him the night before at an event and so he knew I was going to be there and he showed up that day and he had chocolate milkshakes for everybody and was giving them out and I was like oh my god this restaurant's great we get chocolate (laughs) milkshakes from the boss that never happened again (laughs) (laughs) um he was very demanding he knew he had a very high level of of quality that he wanted to be maintained which I respected um and he just loves food. Um, so how was he? How did he balance that level of demand? He said he was very demanding, but also very caring. So how did you get the the both? How do you demand, but doing it in a way that people still know you care about them? So there was this one dish that we um, would put out. It was a vegetable tempura that was actually for uni sashimi bar, but it came out of the Clio kitchen. And we would have um, vegetable tempura kits that were already put together. And so when an order would come in, you just dredge them and fry them. I hadn't put the kits together that day, but I was the one working that station. And he happened to be working expo. And a veg tempura came in. I dredged it. I put it up. I put it up for him. And... Um, <clears throat> there was carrots, uh, broccoli, and onions, and a couple other vegetables in it. And he looked at it and goes, what the hell is this <laughs> crap? And slammed his fa- hand, just his palm right down on the whole thing and crushed it. And it went everywhere. He goes, we've got over 500 different kind of vegetables down in that walk-in. And you're giving me carrots and broccoli? <laughs> it's like, Oh, God. (laughs) So, and it just, you know, but at the end of the night, he came up to me and he just, he's like, listen, I realize you didn't put it together, but you're responsible because you're the one who put it out. Mm. And, you know, you just have to realize that it doesn't matter if, if you weren't on that station yesterday, it doesn't matter. You have to check everything when you come in and make sure everything is how it should be because you're the one who's responsible for it in the Mm -hmm. long run and he's 100 percent correct obviously yeah so i mean (laughs) you you have to make sure that you meet that standard that you set for yourself and your team and you don't settle for anything less what else did you guys do to make sure that that standard was met were there checks and balances was it just a uns or uh just like kind of like a code that like you operated at a certain level, but how did you pinpoint where that mark was? And is there a way that he created systems to make sure that you hit that mark every time? I mean, after he said that to me every single day after that, I would come in an hour earlier if I only had one day off a week. And after that one day off, I would go come in an hour early and take everything out of the station, double check everything and put everything back. And so I knew exactly where everything was, exactly what quality everything was. Everything was FIFO'd, nothing had gone bad, just, I mean, I I took it upon myself. I only wanted to get yelled at once. That was more than enough for me. (laughs) 
Um, but I, I really made sure my, my station was real tight after that. So what else did you learn from Ken? Um, I, I would say that actually under Ken, I, I didn't work directly under Ken as much because he wasn't, my, my internship was only six months long. And then when I was at Toro, I was working under Jamie Bissonette. And mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things that I learned from him was that um, never ask any employee to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. Mm. Give me an example of how he displayed that. At the end of the night, he would be there with a deck brush scrubbing the floors. It Why is that so important? What does that communicate when they, when the, the chef is willing to do that? I think it just shows that, you know, you're not all talk and that you want to make sure it's done correctly and you're willing to show somebody how to do it correctly so it gets done every single time that way. Mm-hmm. What about managing and leading the team? Did he have a different style than Ken Oranger that you learned or any different techniques that you picked up from him? Jamie... You've spoken with Jamie. Yes, I have. It was one of my earlier interviews. I'll link to it in the show notes. He uh, he is a very entertaining individual and highly sarcastic. And he does a great job of leading with charm. And he makes it light and he makes it fun to be around. And it makes the day go by. Leading with charm. Give me an example of how he led with charm. Uh, I mean, he just, I don't think it might be PC to say anything that he might have said. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I try to be respectful to everybody, but um, I don't really acknowledge PC things on this podcast. Whatever you want to say, let it fly. So it's a pretty raw and authentic podcast. <laughs> I mean, he just would joke and he would have a good time and he... It was always just fun to be around him because he would he loved music and he <laughs> would always be playing different music and talking about music and his passion showed through and his passion for food showed through and if you ever had a question he was happy to take the time to answer it fully and to make sure you were satisfied with the answer before he would move on to anything else and his food was good it was really it was great obviously mm-hmm. he's doing something right yeah absolutely and you know one other thing that really is interesting um jamie Bissonette, best chef northeast i don't know how many he went once or mm-hmm. yeah uh, when he was at uh copa 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 mm-hmm. um so i'm really interested in him because he's dyslexic and you actually just told me that you're you, you too are dyslexic i am uh what are the challenges of being dyslexic and working in a kitchen? I know I'm dyslexic and I struggle with it being in kitchens. I fuck shit up all the time <laughs> because I, I read things wrong always and I get it in my head, but I, I would, you know, I switch things around. Uh, how do you deal with that? So actually just a little side story is when I was doing my internship, uh, I had never heard of Fleur de Sel before and I was working with Chris, my husband at that point, and I kept on calling it Cell de Fleur. And he thought I was just saying it to make him upset. And I was like, no, I don't even hear it. I don't realize I'm saying it wrong. It's weird. Like, I totally know what you're saying. Like, you do things and you say things and like you do not catch it. No, it's I said normal. it correctly. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. Um, most of my dyslexia is actually with numbers. Okay. If you give me four numbers in a row, I will always switch the middle ones. Yeah. Um, so one of my biggest challenges actually has been in when I'm hosting. <laughs> And taking numbers down for people. And I just always, 
I just make sure to double check, double check, double check. I always read things back. I always say it again. And whenever I'm doing recipes too, I always will check the measurements like seven times before I actually do them and read back recipes and just being diligent about double checking, I think is yeah. the biggest you thing for work me. That, like, it's almost, you create the habit, you know about your weakness mm-hmm. and you're aware of it. So you, you create habits to double check yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were working for Jamie, did you know that he was dyslexic? I didn't actually. Not until after? Mm-mm. Did that conversation ever come up between the two of you? No, it's not something I actually, I think it's funny that within moments of knowing you, it ended up coming up. Well, no, it's funny because <laughs> like I was a commercial pilot, mm-hmm. um, not a great thing to be dealing with when you have lives in your hands. Yeah. And that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I resigned from aviation. Cause I was like, I'm going to hurt somebody or like get my, my license revoked because I'm going to make a stupid mistake. And I had the same issue. I, I mix up numbers all the time and I'd put numbers in backwards and then I would, every once in a while I wouldn't catch it. You know, yeah. I was like, this isn't good. It would, and, you know, I had to make that decision to get out of the, out of that lane. It wasn't my strength. It wasn't where I belonged. And I, mm-hmm. like I mentioned to you during our pre-interview chat, uh, I just found myself looking forward to being in those situations where I didn't have to rely on the details of like the words and numbers, but I could just be present and read someone's emotions, read someone's physical. Mm-hmm. Cause I, you can't mi- miss that up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was just natural for me. Um, but I would always be afraid to come out and say I'm dyslexic because of the commercial pilot thing. But now it's, it's just fair. like, whatever, you know, like it's a <laughs> thing and it's, and I'm not alone. And a lot of successful people were talking about this in this industry are dyslexic. It comes up often on the show. Um, I'm trying to think of the, there's another gentleman in, in Denver. He's a sommelier. Oh, what's his name? He did a Ted talks. It's escaping me, but he's another person that came up. Um, hmm. any other, like, no, like I'm, I'm sure there's a few people listening to this that probably are, are dyslexic. So any advice for that person out there that, that struggles with this? I mean, I've always been a slow reader an obscenely slow, slow reader, but I love reading. I just, I think, if you happen to have any sort of learning disability, don't let it discourage you from doing anything you want to do, but just realize that you might have to take a little more time and care to ensure you do the job correctly. Mm-hmm. And I think also just not looking at it as a negative, um, because we were talking again during the, pre- the pre-interview chat um, Malcolm Gladwell in David versus Goliath, a book that he wrote, one of his many books discusses that, uh, that some people who are diagnosed with the dyslexia, it turns out that they become really good at other things to compensate for their dyslexia, whether that be listening really well or reading body language really well. And they lean on those other strengths to compensate and they become really good at those other things because of it. So like, don't look at it as a, uh, a challenge. Look at it as an opportunity to be really good at something else and to mm-hmm. uh, break the mold, if you will, you know? Um, so, any other big lessons during the come up between the time you graduated and you came to Boston and you uh, opened your own place in 2014? Any key mentors, any key lessons that are worth diving into? I mean, uh, my chef that I worked for, uh, Beth Morin, when I was catering before I actually went to the CIA, uh, she was definitely a huge, a huge mentor for me. Um, she was a woman in the kitchen, which is, you know, not the most common of things becoming more common, which is fantastic. Um, but whatever I decided I wanted to do, she was always there to support me and to help guide me. And when we were in the throes of 
opening a restaurant. I called her a couple of times and I was like, Beth, I just don't know if I can do this. She's like, sure you can. (laughs) She's like, of course you can. I've seen you work. You put your head down and you keep going. And that's what you do. And I mean, I learned that a lot from her. I had a, I had a good work ethic in the first place, but the you, I think the key to being an entrepreneur is not giving up when somebody tells you no. Mm. We went to this is completely off the topic, but we went on, we went to twelve different banks to try to get a loan because we actually we bought this whole building for central provision. Yeah, let's just transition into that story of you guys coming up to Boston yeah. um, and how you made it happen. So I think the mantra right now is just not giving up. So mm-hmm. when did this vision, and we'll get into how you guys got the loan eventually, but when did this vision for uh, central provision or the idea of you two, you and your husband, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, moving to Maine and opening a restaurant, how did that come to be? So we were engaged. Well, I had tried... I love traveling and living in different cities and in my mind I was going to forever be a gypsy moving from city to city and working at different places and then I met my fabulous now husband trapped (laughs) yeah (laughs) when I remember when I was looking for different cities to do my my internship in the first place and my dad was like be real careful (laughs) where you end up picking because you might end up being there for a long time I was like I don't know what you're talking about that's ridiculous (laughs) And then I was in Boston for almost seven years. Um, so he, uh, every time we tried to move, Ken gave Chris a promotion. And so we ended up being there for a lot longer than we were intending on being. And so when we were, we were getting married, I was like, okay, cool. I'll totally marry you, but we're not staying in Boston. <laughs> So we were thinking about moving to Chicago or San Francisco. We even went out to Chicago and we're looking around. One of my best friends lives out there and just trying to figure it all out. And then one day, oh, Chris is originally from Bethel, which is, um, and we would go back and forth. About an hour north from here. Yep. And when we would go to see his parents, we'd always stop in Portland. And it had come out at one point that he intended on always moving back to Maine, which was news to me. (laughs) 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 But he, we were having the discussion one night and I was like, why don't we just move to Portland and open a restaurant? He's like, what? You want to move to Maine? I said, no, 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 no. I want to move to Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've always lived outside of cities or around cities and I like the culture and everything that comes with cities. Yeah. So what what was it about Portland in specific or particularly that resonated with you? Well, don't be afraid to pull that mic down and like get it right. You, you settled into your seat. Yeah. There you <laughs> so the food scene was good. It was really good. And we just, we saw that it was going nowhere but up. Mm-hmm. So Andrew Taylor, Chris actually, Chris and I both worked with Andrew Taylor when he was at Clio. I, yep. I, I was at Toro at the time, but either way. So we knew Andrew. And to set it up for the listeners, Andrew Taylor is the business partner of Arlen Smith, who I just interviewed a couple days ago. The episode went live not too long ago. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, So we would go visit him. We went to Hugo's and visited him, and we just went to all sorts of different restaurants around here whenever we would go back and forth. And I loved how it was a really quaint city and had a lot of 
most of the amenities that big cities have, but the small town feel. Yeah, much more transformative, much more like the relationships I feel like in a smaller city are stronger, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Not so transactional. Well, and in Boston, there was just, it felt like all of the restaurants were in competition with Mm -hmm. each other. Whereas in Portland, it feels as though everybody's just trying to support each other. Yeah, why is that so much better as far as like that? Like it's just nice. Healthy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember going out with the boys after a night of cooking and fistfights breaking out between cooks from different restaurants just because they're talking shit about stupid stuff and it doesn't even matter. Whereas that's not what happens here. I mean, I have conversations with staff members when they talk that it is if you are going to be a member of our restaurant you are not to talk shit about other restaurants yeah that is not okay you are represent you're you represent us and we have a good relationship with all the other restaurants we want to keep it yeah and i've absolutely seen a trend amongst the most successful restaurant tours i've had the chance now to go to a lot of different cities and it's the restaurant tours that look at other restaurants as a companion or uh colleagues almost like Mm -hmm. uh this is our community and we're here to to support one another and they collaborate and it's those who collaborate and work with each other and share this is our challenge right now what's your challenge and oh we're up against it right now we could use some flour or like whatever Mm -hmm. it's those people that really come together that end up getting to the top because they have each other they support each other and they and they share knowledge they share information and they help each other out mm-hmm. and that's why they rise to the top well uh rising tide yeah uh, all ships rise with the tide there yeah. we go yeah, exactly <laughs> so um you let's really start to dive into like some of the business stuff so yeah um how you how are you going to make it happen once you decided on portland being your city and the culture of the city um how did you make it happen how what was the plan So after working, me working at Toro and Chris being at Copa and Uni, they're all small plates restaurants. And we love just eating in small plate formats because I can never make up my mind (laughs) and I want to have a bite of everything. (laughs) So it just, I don't, I get bored of a big plate of one thing. I don't want to eat it. Like halfway through, I just, I don't want it anymore. So... We wanted to do small plates, but we didn't want to be trapped into one cuisine. And at that point, it really wasn't a thing to just be a small plates restaurant. So it was a hard sell. (laughs) We came up with a business plan and we revised it and revised it and revised it and revised it. And we um, had some money but not a ton of money yeah so what Um, what were some of the reasons for these revisions what was going on that made you have to make these revisions was it trying to match the the concept with the demographic what what was going on in your head uh well it's just having different people look over it making it more feasible yep um and then also just talking to different people we had um one business professional in Portland that we had spoken with at one point who uh, we were approaching him hoping it would be a, a partnership and he would, you know, give us some cash. But at the end of the conversation, he actually gave us the best piece of advice that we had gotten, which was stop looking to rent and start looking to buy. Why is that so important? Well, for... We, we kept on looking at spaces that weren't restaurants and we would have to completely outfit the space to be a restaurant and we would just be pouring 
hundreds of thousands of dollars into something that wasn't ours. Yeah, you're upgrading someone else's asset. Yep. Yeah. So you what what's the right way to look at a a restaurant space as an asset? Like how how did that change your perspective? Well, he said you have the right background that you'll be able to convince somebody. What do you mean by that? <laughs> right background. What that, made you have the right background? That the people that we had worked for and that we had worked in the restaurant industry long enough and more. I mean, Chris was the one who had actually had held the chef positions and not me. Mm -hmm. So he had the know how on how to operate a restaurant. So, and he actually gave us the contact at Bangor savings bank. That was the first person who, after going to 12 restaurants, restaurants at banks actually looked at our (laughs) resumes and was like, Oh yeah, these are, these are really good restaurants. They know what they're doing. Exactly. It's so people when they think about opening a restaurant, like how am I going to get the money? This is my idea. Become a person of value. How do you become a person of value? You learn things. You so you you network. You know people. The people you know is an asset. Like brand alignment, right? Mm-hmm. Like align your brand with other successful brands and learn as much from these people. So when people are investing in you, they can they can see that track record. They can mm-hmm. see that you are a person of value because you put the time in to surround yourself with the right people and get the right knowledge. Uh, that's where you should be starting if you want to open a restaurant. Is go go network. Go. Find people that can help you become a better restaurateur. And work. Mm. I feel like one of the biggest issues that we have is we have these like 20 year olds that are coming to work with us. And like, I want to be a chef today. That's not going to happen today. Yeah. They they live in the now world where their entire life, right, has been getting it right now. Yeah. Uh, Instant gratification. Um, And it takes time. It takes a lot of time. So you change this mentality. Okay. No more renting. Um, We're going to buy. What was it about this location that's staying with you? Well, did you see upstairs? Uh, just now, as I look up, yeah. So, what, so, what are we looking at? This building was built in 1828 by Daniel Fox, who worked for the East India Trade Company, um, which uh, the Boston Tea Party, uh, that was their tea. Okay. Um, the Wharf Street used to be the actual wharf, and boats would come right up to the back door and unload all of their provisions. And there's tra- there used to be trap doors in all of the levels, and that's a, a bull wheel. That's a 15-foot span bull wheel that they would lower down and, and haul all of the barrels and crates and everything up with. So this building was then given to his daughter. The person who we bought it from had bought it for $20,000 in back taxes. <clears throat> we paid a little bit more than that. <laughs> Um, but the building is just beautiful and the concept of ever being able to own and protect this kind of history was just amazing to us. Mm. And I spent weeks in the Portland room in the, the library and also the historical society, just doing as much research as I could to find out like what had happened to this building, what was in this building, what was, what was everything and it was just i love this building <laughs> yeah it's a gorgeous building and you're tapping on something else too um, when developing the brand of central provision you're sharing the history of the central provision isn't just a restaurant it's mm-hmm. it's the you're continuing you know, let me ask you what is it i mean what is central provision i don't want to put words so in your mouth. so it was a warehouse for provisions and then uh dana street the cross street was originally called central street mm-hmm. so it was important to us that the name be 
somehow embody the historical significance of the building. Uh, it does confuse a lot of people. <laughs> they uh, they come in, they're like, but where are all the provisions? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. But the, I think the point that I was trying to make is that uh, the brand is authentic. The brand is real. And you, you share the story on the website and you take people along that narrative, right? And I think that's so important when trying to identify telling that story and really painting that clear picture of who you are and like what this building is and why it's so important to us. Right. And you communicate Mm -hmm. that so well. So it was, um, it was a barrel top shop and burlap bag shop at one point, not the actual barrels, just the tops. Um, it was, uh, Corey and sons, which, uh, made woodworking and metalworking tools. Um, there, Oh, it also was, a. A bitters and wine storage house for a while too so we took all of these historical things and our chairs were all made by a metal worker um and originally all the seat cushions were actually made of burlap sacks that we had gotten from our coffee producer that i upholstered all on my own Ooh, i wow I, with no experience this was just <laughs> like cool i'll just take this piece of wood okay that's foam <laughs> But they did not hold up that well, so they're wood now. But actually, the brother of our um, metal worker is a woodworker, and he made all of our signs, and we just tried to work with as many artisanal people as possible locally that are still practicing these crafts that is not that common to do anymore to so create our I'm sure restaurant. that was a lot more expensive. Uh, to go to these craftsmen to, to, but why is it worth it? You know, like it, it, you mean going to someone to say, I want a chair that looks like this instead of actually buying a chair is yeah. more expensive. <laughs> right. But there's a reason there's a, again, I think it, it contributes to that narrative and it's not just a restaurant. It's a restaurant that the community came together to create. And you're taking money that would go to somebody who's who knows how many miles away mm-hmm. and you're taking the money out of the community. Why not take that money and put it back into the community? And like, how isn't that what hospitality is caring? Isn't that the core of hospitality though? Like really putting your money where your mouth is and like giving it back to the community in, in multiple ways, not just in food service. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely is. We try, we try our best to give back to the community. <laughs> you do a great job at it. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I'm curious about, this is an old building. Mm-hmm. So what were the challenges that you faced um, moving into the space? What was it? Was it a restaurant before no. you bought it? No, we have done everything to this building. We put brand new buildings. We just put a new roof on. Uh, when we went to, it was downstairs was vacant at the time. And where the restaurant is now? Yeah, where the, where is the there bar. A so it's a little confusing because it's located on a hill. Okay. There's the basement, then there's Wharf Street, which there's street entrance to, and then there's 4th Street, which there's street which, entrance yep. to. Then there's the third floor, that's the offices, and then there's the fourth floor where we are now, which is the apartments, mm-hmm. or apartment, just one. I love this apartment, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's available <laughs> to rent on Airbnb. We'll talk about that afterwards. <laughs> um, but we... Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Uh, the challenges of... Oh, <laughs> sorry. So when we were... It was a clothing store, Carla's, and it had been a clothing store since the 
80s, actually. So we had to do everything to this building. When the city told us that the gray water was coming out on the wrong side of the street, and my response was, I'm pretty sure we were here before that. But okay, fine, we'll change it. Um, We had to deal with historical preservation, which is, I appreciate that they they're what they're trying to do but they make everything difficult <laughs> so did you factor in for all these things when you bought this space were you thinking to yourself to put a restaurant in here um we're gonna have to pass certain codes that have been created uh before you know like there's things that you're gonna have to do to bring this thing up to code uh like you mentioned with the gray water and uh just the physical build out itself with the historical society were these things that you were factoring in when you're creating a budget for the build out like how did you manage that it took us <clears throat> it took us six months to actually purchase the building um and we we were under contract the whole time but we kind of pretended like we already owned it <laughs> and had, was, why was that beneficial well, we had architects that were already working on plans and we we had to actually in reality have that money prior because we had to have all of the costing for what the build out was going to be and everything before they would give us anything. Because, <laughs> oh, I should also mention it wasn't just a bank. We also worked with the SBA too. Okay. So that's something that we were started to talk about. You went to 12 different banks before you got the loan. So... Two banks said, yeah, sure. You sound like a good idea, but one bank was not moving fast enough for us. So how many banks did you go to before you got the two yeses? Uh, Twelve. It wasn't until there was the last two that actually said yes, and we stopped going to banks. (laughs) Okay. So you you didn't get enough from the first two banks? Or they were Uh, moving too slow? What was it? uh, No. So Bangor Savings is one of the two, the one that we ended up going with. But um. Uh, the other bank, they they had somebody who was out on maternity leave and somebody else was covering and it just, we were trying to like get them to basically play off of each other, but there was no play because <laughs> Banker was just crushing them. We were like, all right, we're not even going to bother. Okay. Um, so you eventually, you got the capital. Unless there, are there any lessons that we can draw from that, that time of the, the opening uh, going through? I mean, obviously just determination keeps showing up, like and keep going until you get a yes, right? Yeah, and I mean, every actually every time we went in and talked to a bank, they gave us some sort of, when they would politely decline, I would always ask for feedback. Mm. Why is that so important? Um, because it gave us an opportunity to revise mm-hmm. and to, to reapproach and figure out where our weaker parts were and how to strengthen them. And Was there any feedback that really stands out to you to this day? I mean, yeah, but it's not very helpful. It was um, Camden Bank, and their feedback was, well, after five years, all restaurant, um, 80% of restaurants close. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the feedback. And I was like, oh, thank you. So that's why you're not investing in us. And actually, our friend, um, a brand, uh, is in the process of currently opening his place, uh, Gross Confection Bar, which is going to be amazing and i can't wait for it to be open um but he um he is actually going with camden bank and when he he was working for us prior to uh being fully engrossed in the opening of gross um but he 
It's like, oh, yeah, I'm working for Central Provisions. And one guy goes, oh, man, we're just really kicking ourselves about that now. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, But it was small things like, you know, they're like, well, what's your you don't really explain what your demographic is. And so then it was going back and revising and figuring out, okay, what is our demographic? You're you're taking away the no's, right? You go, you get a no, you you solve that problem and you go back until there's no more way for them to say no. Uh, No. That that's not the first time that's come up on the show, and it's great advice. Just eliminate the no's. Uh, get the feedback. Why? Don't just accept the no. Find out why, why it's a no, and then eliminate that no. And keep going until you get nothing but yeses. And even with working with the city of Portland, can be a little challenging to work with, as any as any government can be. Yeah. <laughs> and even when we came up against red tape in there, it was talking to the different departments being like okay why is the answer no mm-hmm. they're like well this code says this okay well we there's only one means of egress for here the steps that we just came up it's and egress uh way to exit the okay. building and technically you always have to have two forms of egress but it turns out our windows count as a form of egress <laughs> and it's so it's also just we had to work with a fire uh, protection engineer to actually write a whole new code because of the historical significance of our building that we didn't have to actually put another form of egress in. And so it's also just figuring out to the root as to why the answer is no. And even if they explain it one way, ask them to do it again and again and again in different angles. And feel like you can usually find a crack yeah so was this around the time that you were feeling like you couldn't make it happen when you reach out to your friend and she just told you yeah you can <laughs> uh or did this come no after? this was after this was when um more of when we were actually uh, deep in it and we owned the building at this point it was actually getting the building so let's permit. let's bring it to that point i want to make sure we kind of talk about the other challenges and what really made you get up against it unless there's something like we're leaving out not on the table is it know. cool to move forward <laughs> yeah yeah all right so you you get through all the challenges with getting the loan the build out issues with the, the city and now you're about to open what's going on like what were your biggest challenges at this time how did you overcome them um well it took us six months to get our building permit which was a lot longer than we had anticipated because our build out was supposed to take two months. We had purchased the building in June. We were ready to submit everything as soon as it happened. So we thought we were going to be up and running in the beginning of the fall. Are you comfortable with saying how much you thought you would need to get started? Uh, The build up ended up being a whole lot more. I can tell you that much. I mean, we had, um, we had three, $350,000 $350,000 for the build out and it ended up being $50,000 more beyond that and we actually needed we ended up taking on a business partner in order to accommodate that and on top of that I also got a loan from my my lovely cousin okay <laughs> so just any means necessary how did you when finding this business partner what made you decide with how did you know it was going to be a good choice how did you know you were going to be able to trust this person <laughs> it was Chris's parents okay <laughs> That's a good reason. He actually, uh, I talked about it with him recently. Uh, when he presented the idea to me in the first place, I said, that's an awful idea. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be in business with f- family. Yeah. 
And uh, and little did I know, on the other side, he was also trying to convince his parents at the same time trying to convince me. <laughs> <laughs> and the what the terms that we came to was that they were a hundred percent silent partners, okay. and that they had zero say in anything that was done. So even with family, did you go through the due diligence of writing that down and getting that in writing? Oh yeah. Okay. There. I mean, we. It's definitely the our lawyer wrote up all of the necessary paperwork to make sure that it was fair yeah. and legit and yeah. that everything was in place. We're getting a little personal now, so I appreciate you opening up and letting us <laughs> talk about this because uh, there's good advice in this stuff. And this is the stuff that people just don't think of, right? Like the mm-hmm. build up being more expensive. And I, I've heard whatever you think it's going to cost like up to like tw- double that uh, and have that in the bank for just in, in case. And if you don't use it all, then good. That's your, that's the, the capital you have in the bank for uh, just operational costs in the early days when mm-hmm. when you might not be making a lot of money you need at least six months of just costs to overhead overhead right yeah. just to cover the expenses do you guys have that worked in when you got yep. the extra did you consider we had eighty thousand dollars of overhead okay well so that was the the one loan that was just that was just for the build out we also had an overhead loan mm-hmm. that was separate so i think another thing that was important and just something to keep in mind that if you do actually purchase a building to have two separate llc's so they're separated and if anybody ever happens to go after your business they can't actually go after your building so you have two separate llc's one llc is the umbrella over the business and the other llc is the umbrella over the uh, company that owns the building yeah it's just a real estate holding business okay. uh, llc and so i am actually the sole member of the building and so i i own the building nice. <laughs> and chris owns the business okay so there's also just that separation um so if anybody ever goes after it they can't ever can't take, take the, the building, building as an asset they could take all of the business but they couldn't take the building smart cool so- um which is important obviously yeah. <laughs> so making sure so this is where the smart friends come yeah, in play exactly. <laughs> no this is why the podcast exists to share this type of stuff we're getting into the nitty-gritty i love it so take us to the point where you're like shit i can't do this i need to call a friend to have them talk me into this thing i can't do this i want to know what was going on at that moment where you thought maybe you couldn't do it what things were driving you to think this oh i mean where to start <laughs> one of my one of my best friends is a uh financial consultant and she kept on being like Paige this is a really bad idea this is do you know how much debt you're going to be in like this is this is an awful idea and I just kept on saying nope nope big risk big reward big risk big reward and in the end what we kept on thinking was okay let's say the restaurant completely falls on its face and fails we still have the building we still have a place to live. <laughs> yep. This is a pretty sweet apartment. So yeah, it was not this sweet when we lived here. I just want to let you know that we did a lot of renovations. Um, on a, we, when we moved in here, we didn't have heat for six or no plumbing for six weeks, electricity for two weeks. And we didn't have heat until the week before Thanksgiving. Were you living here when you moved? Oh yeah. All oh, the wow. we were living here when all the renovations were happening. Jeez. Um, I joined a gym so I could shower. I joined Planet Fitness Black membership so I could uh, shower on the road. I totally <laughs> get it. Yep. <laughs> Planet, that's exactly what I joined. Yeah. And I remember showing up late to work one day being like, sorry, the showers were full. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, I mean, when you're living in an apartment that is a disaster and there's construction dust everywhere and 
it's sometimes it's, there's so much to think about and there's so much to do. And I think one of the other big challenges for us was that both of us were back of the house people. I was, I mean, I was a hostess and a Coke girl when I was 15, but besides that, I just had notions as to what I thought would be a good, good idea yeah. for, for front of the house. And we were smart enough to have, uh, we had Chris Peterman as our opening floor manager and he ran our wine program and he's a, a Psalm. And so I didn't have to worry about, I had somebody to pick the wine, which was great because mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I know what I like, but having someone who is intelligent enough to put together a well-rounded wine list perfect mm-hmm. and then we had patrick mcdonald as our bar manager who again we tried our hand at cocktails and quickly realized i don't know how the hell how to do that and there's I, a lesson here though it's like know your lane stay in it and hire other people who are strong where you're weak it might be more upfront, but it's better than trying to do it yourself and falling hard on your face, right? Like yep. get these people in, get them to at least get the framework there, get the mm-hmm. systems built. And it's, how long do they stay on before leaving? Um, actually, Chris wasn't with us for that long. He was gone by the end of August, but Pat was with us for uh, a year and a half or two years. And how did you know it was time for them to leave? Well, uh, Chris's wife got pregnant, okay, <laughs> so he uh, he decided he wanted to exit the industry, which now he actually owns his own um, a just uh, wine distributor. So that's what he does now. And Pat is actually um, a bar manager at a different restaurant now. Okay, in the process of trying to open up his own bar. So when did uh, was it? You said Chris and Pat. Yep. When did Pat? When do you know it's time for Pat to go? Uh, well, he he put in his notice (laughs) he just came up to us and said that you know if he's putting this much time and effort into something that he wanted it to be his own i think there's something there's some validation to that too like if if you're gonna work hard to keep a business open it might as well be your own business Mm -hmm. uh i i I kind of agree with that statement how do you guys feel when this went down do you were you i was completely supportive yeah I mean, I, I think that's another, um, I have left several jobs. I've left jobs. I've always given plenty of notice. I've never been someone to no call, no show or walk out. Um, but I have left some jobs and even though I give them plenty of time and notice, it is a very unpleasant parting. And I've also left jobs where it's very supportive and uplifting. And I think that's also part of putting the employees first is always just even on parting to make sure it's a positive note that you're ending on because Mm -hmm. it's shitty when you leave a job on your last day and nobody's happy. And when he gave us notice, we were nothing but supportive and saying, whatever you need, any advice you need, I'm here to help you. How has that served you? Uh, being supportive to people who have left. Has that ever come around uh, some way, some form, maybe in a referral from a new person to replace them? Or Yeah. Well, they always, they're always happy to help find somebody to replace. And it was actually my dad who, who gave me the advice in the first place that if, if somebody wants to leave, don't try to get them to stay. Why is that good advice? Because if they want to leave, they don't want to be here anymore. Mm. And if they don't want to be here anymore, then you don't want them working for you. So true. Anything else between uh, opening Central Provision in Tipo, um, any lessons that you found out the hard way or things that you 
feel like would be of value to our listeners that we can dive into before discussing when you knew it was time to go to the second location? So we're open seven days a week for two services. Um, and that's a lot. We we set up a very challenging platform for ourselves. And I don't even think we realized what we were doing when we did it. We reprint our menus every single day. Wow. And that's not to say the whole menu changes, but there's at least one aspect of a, a dish that changes, just something that changes. And we have staple dishes too, but we have specials on top of that. Our wine list is constantly evolving. Our beer list, we, oh, I mean, we're also in the Mecca of beer. So we're very fortunate to have so many different breweries that are available to us. And we just are always changing everything, even something as simple as our, our cheese plate. It's sometimes also the cheese plate is actually the one thing that I, <laughs> I have culinary full nice. influence over, but I, I get different cheeses almost every single time. And every once in a while, my staff is like, can you get something we can pronounce, please? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, but it's just, it's, it, it, it's, it's a very challenging um, business plan <laughs> that so, we came up with. And we went to, when we went to open Tipo, we kind of looked at it and we we're like, okay, what can we do completely different? So it is not such a beast. Yeah. Um, and we decided that we were going to close two days a week and that, you know, this is supposed to be a neighborhood spot and that's what we were going for. So close to two days a week. Great. We're only going to do two services on Saturday and Sunday. Besides that, just nights. Um, we're going to have a more steady wine list and beer list. So it doesn't ha- need constant attention and constant because, you know, all those changes, they need to be made by someone the beer needs to be tasted it needs to be everything and and the wine needs to be tasted and i on a side note i always think it's entertaining when people are like oh you're going to wine tasting how much fun i'm like yes it's sure it's fun but it's It's this is work (laughs) um so some of the things so just to make sure i'm on the same page as you um central provision is a beast mm -hmm. uh it takes a lot of i'm sure overhead to operate at that level uh, if you're changing out to that, I mean that's paper costs you're printing out new menus every day like so little things these add up when you mm-hmm. when you operate at the the level you're operating at the with the attention to detail that you're operating at um with the amount of time the days the actual physical and time that goes into it um I would imagine uh, there isn't the over or the the margins are probably smaller in an operation like this too with so much staff right and people yeah, and bodies yeah so <laughs> you're looking at the second location to be in Arlen and I talked about this, your friend, um, with what they did with Eventide, mm-hmm. that was meant to be their cash cow. Yep. Like, you know, Hugo's was the the way to like be f- like to flash and like to show like the the flex, right? This is what we can do. Mm-hmm. And then th- for them, Eventide was like margins, like big margins, right? Is that kind of what was going on too with, with uh Tipo? Were you thinking flour and water, big margins there? Yeah. I mean, it's also a neighborhood spot. It wasn't, Chris always wanted to do pizza 
and there was already this beautiful wood oven in this location and it was located in this great neighborhood that there weren't a ton of restaurants around even though it's it's only a 10 minute drive from here but in that direct neighborhood there's not anything um and yes flour and water that's part of what we were thinking that it would be larger margins but it's a it's just a different animal completely i mean neighborhood first in the center of downtown and we take reservations there there's we literally we took all of the complaints that our customers have we don't take reservations it's hard to get parking it's not child friendly we also had a kid in the meantime so (laughs) and we did everything over there i mean there's a kid's menu over there we have an eight parking spot if not there's all of the street parking in the world and we take reservations and we just tried to make it what the locals were looking for and what the locals wanted because down here it's it's tourists Mm -hmm. and which is fantastic and but at the same time you do have your regulars and you need to be good to your regulars because they're the people here year round yeah keep you in business during the off season exactly And I mean, you want to draw the tourists in, but you still want to make sure you're keeping your, your people happy. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you find that balance? Oh, um, you just, you gotta be good to your regulars. Yeah. Uh, man, there's so much we could talk about right now. How did you know it was time to go to the second location? How do you know you're ready for it? That you had the bandwidth, the staff, all these variables you needed. So, um, I find that anybody who chooses the hospitality industry as their profession has like a small amount of like sadomasochist enjoyment because it is, it's work. It's a lot of work. And, uh, so many people are like, why would you ever want to do that? I'm like, cause it makes me happy. And in that same mindset my husband is is like a shark that if he stopped swimming he'd die he when we were on our honeymoon we were in this beautiful little seaside village where we were on a private beach and I was lying down and and reading a book and he made a sandcastle and then the next day we were only there for a day and and a night and the next day when we went he uh the castle was still there. And so he built a whole farm and a whole village around it. (laughs) And so he just always wants to be moving. And even on his days off, he's working in the garden or doing this and doing that. And just, so we had gotten to a point in central provisions where everything was just moving so fluidly and everything. We had all of the systems in place and, and good staff in, in line and everything was just moving so fluidly. And one day he looked at me and he goes, I'm bored. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> no. <laughs> and um, our real estate agent who had um, sold us this building kept on bugging in his ear and being like, oh, well, why don't you just come look? Why don't you come look at this location? Why don't you come look at this location? And we looked at a couple of them and and well, it was the wood-fired oven that did it. Yeah. He saw the wood-fired oven and I was like, well, okay, this is <laughs> this is happening. And then we also, we, we knew we wanted to have one more child. So I, Lucy, we had Lucy when the restaurant, when Central Provisions was about a year and a half old. And that was about the time that we were looking into starting the whole TIPO situation. And, um, 
we at that point said, okay, cool. If we're going to do this, like we know we want to have one more kid, but let's wait until TIPO is open and then we'll start trying. I was already pregnant. <laughs> um, so Jocelyn and TIPO are twins. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we're crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned something um that you knew you were ready. You said you had all the systems tight and all the mm-hmm. people tight. How did you build those systems? What's that process of of replacing yourself with the systems look like? Because you must have had to have systems and people in place to redirect all of your attention to open and build out another restaurant. So what was that process of building these systems out? How did you evolve those systems? Um, I think... The beginning of that is just kind of a way and how Chris and I both work in general is that at the end of any day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, I always look at the day and think, how could I have done that better? And even if something is successful, still looking and say, okay, cool, how could I do it better? And just constantly being willing to improve upon whatever you have. Once you find the best way to do something, even though you could probably still continue to do it better every day, how do you document it to make sure it stays being done that way to that um, standard? I mean, we have we have handbooks. Something smells so good right now, by the way. It's like leaking through the, the cracks of the floor. Yeah, it's uh, our pastry chef oh, is just down man. below. <laughs> it's hard to focus on what you're saying. It smells so good. Sorry. Uh, systems. Uh, what, what was the question? Um, well, we have... Um, I mean, we have employee handbooks. Is that cinnamon buns? Is that what I'm smelling right now? Honestly, I can't. I, she's working on <laughs> my, a new dessert. My ADD so. is like <laughs> roaring through right now. Um, so, I think so. Having employee manuals, I think, is also something that is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And being to show an employee exactly what you exactly what you expect from them, and that way, if they know what to expect, then. If they're not performing, then there's no question as to what is happening. You're painting that picture of perfection and aiming point. Like this is what the job done right looks like. This is what you have to hit. And we have the general book and then we have individualized sections for each role. So for, for the bar back, for the dishwasher, for the, these are what we expect exactly from you. When you're going through those roles, like what are you thinking? Like how are you structuring this? Uh, I mean, it, we so for this i'm trying to think of a good example for the servers um we expect you to always be uh hygienically clean and professional Mm -hmm. and to not wear any perfume or any lotions that have any strong scents um because that can be very distracting and some people are also allergic to that it takes away from the food yeah yep um and just small guidelines like that but then there's also the the larger guidelines and a lot of this has just come over time and and a lot of it is due to just my fantastic management staff um back to the note with um hiring chris peterman and chris mcdonald is the fact that do not be afraid to say you're wrong and you don't know something mm. and hire somebody who knows how to do it and respect them for what they know yes why why is that so important because you don't know everything yeah and it's okay and i think you get a lot more respect when you turn over and you sh- show your underbelly and you say hey like i'm vulnerable here like 
when you show your, your weaknesses, like that develops trust. People trust you more when you don't claim to know everything, right? And also uh, admit when you're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're everyone's so, human. <laughs> it sounds like over time, like you had the good foundation. You got the right people on your team who knew what they were doing and they had their framework that they just took from their previous experiences and plugged mm-hmm. in over here. And then you constantly just added to it. And when there was some, maybe something came up and like someone was like, like, you're like, we should put that in the manual because that's a new thing yeah. that gets added. And like you just make a note. Well, we, it was actually in during one job interview, somebody showed up and she's like, yes, and I worked for this restaurant and they had this whole like food book and this training manual. And we were like, oh, can we, can we see that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we, we were like, that's a great idea. Yeah. We should do that. Beautiful. And then we adopted from that and then made it into our own and just constantly evolving, never letting it become static because I mean you were saying, what do you do when you feel like it's the best? I don't, I don't know if there is anything that's the best. Mm. I think everything, every day is a new challenge and every day, um, something that might work for one employee won't work for a different employee. And you just have to evolve and mold and be fluid. Yes. That's the word that work. was in my head. Fluid. Yeah. We've talked about a lot and we've, it's been an hour and 10 minutes of recording time. It goes by so fast, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, anything that you want to bring to the table before you move on to the speed round? I don't want anything that you were hoping we would discuss or any knowledge that just is like really just like rearing its head at you right now. Like you need to share me. Like, is there anything in that? I mean, I know I already said it, but just don't take no for an answer and keep going because mm. the difference between a business owner and somebody who tried to own a business is somebody who didn't take no for an answer. Yes. Awesome. This has been great. We're going to take a quick, a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple, powerful, and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. 
employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success oh uh not a very good speed round. I don't <laughs> I would say um, being able to put pressure on myself and hold myself accountable mm. for what needs to be done because when you're self-employed, there's nobody above you telling you what you need to be doing. So just having the accountability in yourself is important. What is your biggest weakness? Can I say laundry? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Folding and putting away laundry. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. What's the one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Why? Why Central Provisions? Why Portland? What are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking for them to talk about the food and the service and the wine. Um, the answer I am not looking for is to pay my rent. Mm. Uh, what is your biggest challenge? Well, let me say that again. Let me burp too. <laughs> Oh, it was like messing me up. What What is your biggest challenge today? Today? Um, securing a dishwasher that actually shows up. Okay. And how are you handling this challenge? Um, we actually have completely changed the way we were going about getting a dishwasher. Um, we've tried signing up actually for a worker release program. Actually, that was something that Arlen was doing and we, I found out through him that was a good idea, but that there wasn't even people, <laughs> they're out of people. So. <laughs> Everyone's out. And that's a testament that we're, when James Beard award winning restaurants and semifinalists, the, the best of the city are struggling to attract onto themselves good people there's an issue in the industry. Well, I mean, uh, securing a dishwasher is always, I feel like, a difficult position because it's something that... I love washing dishes, by the way. Me too. If you need, if you're in a jam, you call me, I'll drive up from New Hampshire and I'll help you guys get through. I seriously, when they're like, (laughs) we need a dishwasher, I'm like, cool, I'll be right down. (laughs) Yeah. I don't mind at all. Just my job is... Dirty dish, clean dish. Yeah. I got this. Yeah. Perfect for me. Um, <laughs> Simple. But um, I, uh, it's, but it's a, we had a 19 year old who hadn't finished high school and had never had a job before that worked for us washing dishes for two weeks. And after two weeks, he came up to Chris and said, I really feel like this job is beneath me. <laughs> I'm. I'm sorry. Maybe it is, but you still got to pay your dues. Like you got to put the time in. Like what? I don't think there's anything beneath you right now. Like (laughs) what are you bringing to our table, to any table? Um, so it's, you know, it's just a difficult position to fill. And we used to have people come in for interviews, but we just, we, I, I 
they wouldn't show up for interviews. So if you can't even get people to show up for interviews, then how are you supposed to get employees? So I've evolved it from there that I will talk to somebody on the phone and say, okay, great. I want you to come in for a working interview. And I have them come in either for a couple hours or a full shift, depending on honestly what our need is. And then at the the end of the day, I say, okay, at the end, you know, if it works for you and it works for us, then you're hired. But if it doesn't work for one party, then, you know, we'll pay you for your day and you can be on your way. So people hear, oh, I can come in and work a couple hours and I'm going to make a little bit of money. Great. And, and if they don't work out, then they're gone. Hmm. And the success rate of people showing up is a lot higher. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? A way to be, a way to act, core value. Um, don't lie to the customers. What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Something that's common within your four walls, but not common throughout the industry. Make sure they always have water. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think, um, I think for us, we, we try to present our food in a very casual manner and we try to kind of, um, de-elevate food. So we, you know, no white tablecloths, our staff wears t-shirts and jeans and, but we serve foie gras Mm -hmm. and we just try to make things that are associated with fine dining be more approachable. Um, stripping away the formalities is something that's very uh, comes up often in the show and making people not feel you don't have to, like you don't have to be pretentious yep. to offer good service right Agreed. just be warm and welcoming and people will be more relaxed and they'll enjoy it better. Mm-hmm. Um, what is one a book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner can't say Danny Meyer sitting at the table either. It's, <laughs> comes up too often. Actually, fun. I wasn't actually thinking about, I, I was thinking of about a, a speech that Danny Myers did that was uh, the irrelevance of being correct, I believe it was. It doesn't matter who's right. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, that was something that I, I frequently talk to my staff about. Um, because it doesn't it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong and you know what are you proving by you know showing your knowledge it's just pretentious yeah it doesn't like don't correct a somebody on what they're should i put a link to that that ted talk is that tedx <laughs> i think it might be i'll find it i'll link to it in the show notes uh if there is one tool or resource you wish you had now that maybe or you wish you had when you're getting started what would that tool or resource be one thing that you wish you had or what would it be? I wish I had taken a class on Excel because, and also a class on InDesign because we use InDesign for all of our menu formatting and also all of our advertisements of any sorts that we do. We do all that in house. So I wish instead of um, Google Learn, <laughs> I had actually had a base course and knowledge in it prior to it. I think most community colleges can offer those now mm-hmm. probably easy to find yeah um what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough don't do well enough take vacation 
<laughs> take vacation. I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, is there one piece of technology you've adopted within the recent history uh, that's had a huge impact on operations, systems, processes, efficiency, communication, things of that nature? Um, I mean, I can't say it was recent, but we started off with one POS that I despised, um, and but it was off of a... Um, um, I, uh, off of iPads, um, tablets, and we changed to breadcrumb after that. I, w- I think it was, we were only in business for six, eight months, I want to say before we switched. And, um, it was life changing. So I love the POS breadcrumb. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, are you using it in conjunction with Observe, the data mining software? Uh, we do, um, and we've been using it since it was Groupon, um, and it's not very helpful for us at Central Provisions due to the fact that our menu changes so frequently. It's hard to get the data because mm-hmm. it's always changing. What about server performance and things like that? Well, uh, the other thing is I'm a very, um, very active owner, so there has only ever been one thing that it showed me that I was surprised at, and that was that my one server or his sales weren't quite as high as I thought they were. And they were, he was actually on the lower side, although his table times were longer. Um, and I thought he would have been higher just because he's such a, he's a seller. But, yeah. um, but besides that, any other information that it's ever showed me is just more of, Oh, Janet's beer sales are down. We need to concentrate more on beer education for her. Or, you know, we should probably be doing a quiz on cocktails because cocktails haven't been selling recently. So we need to make sure that, you know, they realize they need to know this information. Got you. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Let's do it. Okay. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your restaurants, everything about your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for the restaurant industry and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? It's a tough one. I mean, I I love the eye rolls I get when I ask this question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I'm just going to circle back to one of the first things I said, which is treat your employees. Well, Mm -hmm. that's one treat your employees. Well, um, that find happiness in, in finding happiness in what you do will lead to spreading of happiness. Ooh, I dig that. Give me one more. Um, eat good food and drink strong drinks. <laughs> yes. Paige Gould. I've loved speaking with you. Uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire and believe needs to be made an example of on the show. I'll get him on the show. I'll, I'll do my best to get him on the show. Have you had Elma yet? Who? Elma Lopez. No. Uh, so Elma Lopez and Damien Sonsonetti, they own Piccolo and Cheval. And uh, they're, well, they're both lovely, amazing individuals. Um, but Elma is one of the most caring and loving individuals you will ever meet and she just like when you think of of good her face like just comes into my mind um she she's at uh she's 
actually probably washing dishes at Piccolo tonight. <laughs> I was talking to her earlier about that. Oh, man. Um, but her, her and her husband are co-owners of both of those restaurants. All right. Um, she's a pastry Is chef. it Elma or Elma? Elma. Elma. L-M-A. Look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you in the show. And let the folks at home know if we want to follow what you're doing here at Tipo and Central Provision, uh, what's the best way to follow your work and what you're doing? Maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we want to wash your dishes. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, our Instagram uh, and our Facebook are very often updated. We also do keep our website up to date. Um, also, my husband's Instagram, uh, Chef Chris Gould. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. This is episode 400 in... Sorry, I always say 400. I forget that I've actually done over 500 episodes on episode 546. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 546. You can find a summary of today's discussion as well as the links back to any tools, services, or books that were mentioned. Uh, The Dame Meyer video will all be over there. Again, Paige Gould, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my friend. (laughs) You are unstoppable. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Paige Gould. Wow, what a great conversation. Such positive energy. So much fun to talk to you. I think there's a lot to take away from today's conversation, but the big one, the one that really resonated with me is don't take no for an answer. When you get no, uh, find out why, right? And then make changes and keep pushing forward uh and i think that advice that she had with uh getting that loan uh was just spot on uh and just keep showing up keep improving and it will happen also some great advice too around the idea of uh having two separate llc's uh not buy or not renting but buying the the restaurant don't uh don't just invest in the concept of your restaurant invest in the hard assets that, of that building and have something to fall back on and just some really great advice too around the idea of surrounding yourself with the best going to work for the best and when you go to do your own thing getting the best on your team and then knowing that they're better at certain things than you and getting the hell out of the way letting them do the thing letting them do the thing that you hired them for and letting them make you better and honestly when you let people contribute and you let them treat it like they own it they're going to work harder for you they're going to show up in a totally different way than if you just con- command and control the whole situation so awesome stuff there uh i did say this was episode 546 during the recording this is actually episode 547 whoops so head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash 547 if you want uh, a summary of today's discussion uh, and the links to the tools and resources that were mentioned uh keep those five star reviews on itunes and stitcher radio coming up to 151 reviews they help so much thank you if you've left one if you're going to leave one thank you in advance uh, but the best way to serve and support this podcast is by sharing it if you know of anybody who's aspiring to be great in this industry put this podcast on their radio are you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with and at restaurant unstoppable you can surround yourself with the best all right guys that's all for today thank you so much for sticking around this long i love you all and until next time peace out